This podcast is brought to you by sarahraven.com, which is home to everything you need for a truly beautiful and productive garden. You'll also find great and essential gardening kit and stylish, lovely things to have in your house to bring the outside indoors, all inspired by the garden and the house being tied together. There's also plenty of garden inspiration, how-to videos and specialist growing guides. So head over to sarahraven.com today to discover even more. Welcome to Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange, the podcast of me, Sarah Raven. And today I've got Alice Vincent, who I'm sure lots of you have heard of or even heard speaking or have read things by Alice because she's very much kind of in the news at the moment because she's got a wonderful new book out which will appeal to lots of our podcast listeners, which is called Why Women Grow. And it's very much the story of women as gardeners. And anyway, I'm not going to say anymore because Alice is going to tell us all about it. So welcome, Alice. It's <laughs> lovely to have you here. Well, it's lovely to be here. I just, um, I'm just going to explain sort of how I, how I met you and then I'd love to ask you some questions. So I first came across Alice actually through her work with Patch Plants and she wrote a really good kind of starter book on propagating, which was really fantastic. And actually, I gave it to one of my children. And you would have thought, in a way, being brought up in, in my family, they might not have needed it. But uh, it's re- it was really wonderfully clearly explained. And it made Alice come onto my radar as someone in her, I'm, I, it's not impersonal because she's so young, to say probably late 20s, early 30s. That's generous, so, I'd say. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's, um, it's so lovely to have somebody of my children's age who has got but so fanatical about gardening and Alice I, I, I'd love you to tell us how you sort of got into it and the whole root band thing and you know all, all that yeah of course um I didn't know that's how you encountered my work that's really funny that's one of those pieces of work that you do like and you sort of forget you do and then you're like oh yeah that did happen yes so I, well, for the bulk of my career, and all of my career, I've been a journalist. And um, for the vast majority of it, I have been a music and arts journalist. So in my mid-20s, I started getting into gardening. And I'd been fortunate enough to grow up in the countryside in Buckinghamshire. And I always had access to a garden. I felt comfortable, you know, country walks and, and gardening and having, you know, being familiar with the land, but never really gardening much. I wasn't one of those children who had their own veg plot or anything like that. I was really indoorsy, really bookish. And yet in my mid-20s, when I was sort of going to kind of 10 festivals a summer and reviewing lots of gigs and living in South London, I moved to a flat with a balcony and I just started growing things on it. And I didn't have any understanding of anything at all I didn't really know what an annual was or a perennial and I didn't have any formal training and because of the kind of person I am I didn't really want to let on that I was trying to find out about it either because I felt I'd be like laughed at or yes yes <laughs> I was like, if I didn't know how to do something well then I didn't really want to let on that I was doing it yeah it's so true it's I find that really that somehow people expect you and I remember this myself 
uh, that it's sort of like you're expected to know the Latin names and all that kind of stuff. And and what I always say when I'm teaching is, look, you know, I don't know how to speak Japanese, and I won't learn until I until I learn. <laughs> and so it's just you can't expect to have taken it in by osmosis. And and literally, like even French, you know, because we all were taught a bit of French at school. We do know a bit of French, but but why would you know the name of a plant or even recognize the difference between a, I don't know, I mean, okay, a buttercup and a dandelion, but two types of orchid. It's just an orchid. Yeah, I agree. It's just, yeah, it's so odd how culture assumes things. Yeah, you know, it's like, oh, if you're interested in this, then suddenly you've got to be an expert. And I absolutely yeah. wasn't. And I, I'm still not now. I still do not profess to be an expert, which I know for some people is probably a bit irritating or problematic but I'm very much from an approach of give it a go and the passion and experimentation and asking the right questions will enable you to kind of find find a way and uh, so that was that was my situation I was a balcony gardener in my mid-20s and I kept had this sort of secret gardening moonlighting life and because I have always been a writer and a journalist I understand the world by finding things out and writing about them so I remember thinking, well, maybe I should, at the time I worked at the Telegraph, and I was like, maybe I should pitch a, a regular slot or a column to, or even just a piece to the former brilliant gardening editor at the Telegraph, which of course you know as well, Joanna Fortnum. And, yeah. and you know, she is a very generous person, but she, she accommodated this. And I then got a huge attack of imposter syndrome and didn't do anything about it for six months until she sort of chased me down and was like, are you going to do this or not? And I did. And I, I did things like sort of, I'd go to Columbia Road Flower Market at eight o'clock in the morning and go and talk to all the stallholders mm. before it got busy. Or I'd go and speak to the people who were setting up the kind of flurry of new houseplant shops in East London at the time. And all these sort of funny things that were, to me but seemed new and fascinating. So very much not traditional horticulture, but the stuff that seemed to be reflecting a fascination and I, you know, when Patch was still, uh, even before the houseplant thing, they were a kind of funny urban garden consultancy firm. And, and we, you know, I wrote a piece about that. So I was sort of looking at all these new things happening in gardening. And I was very generously given space to do that. And then shortly after that, I had one of those transitional moments in life where my relationship of five years broke down. I didn't have anywhere to live as a result. My fancy job was suddenly not as charming as it used to be. And I had, a, you know, your classic quarter life crisis. And gardening was the one thing, you know, I tried all the traditional methods of recovery. You know, I went to a party a lot, saw my mate, stayed out all night, that kind of thing. But gardening was the thing that tethered me in a way that nothing else would. And that was the essence of what became Rootbound, which was a book I released three years ago now. And is a it is a memoir, but it also looks at what happens across the generations, uh, stretching from kind of Victorian fern hunters to, you know, industrial revolution to the arts and crafts movement, houseplant movement of the 50s, and and what happens when people go to the earth in times of social turmoil. And then that came out and the pandemic happened and everyone started gardening, which was a whole new chapter in that narrative. So yeah, in that that's sort of it really. But I've always been an urban gardener. I still haven't had any formal training and I've always written about it. And now you, you have a garden, don't you? I mean, you tell us about well, tell us about your balcony garden first, because I 
You know, I yeah. love that idea of managing to make a, a really beautiful space. And I've seen photographs of your space, so I know that it's really beautiful. Perhaps we might try and put one of those in the podcast notes. But yeah, t- tell us about your balcony garden first and your favorite plants there, and then maybe into your earth garden rather than on the balcony. So I had two balcony gardens. The first one, which was sort of the one that I lost, I suppose, during Rootbound. And Rootbound ends with me yeah. finally getting another balcony after 15 months. And the first one was sort of very exposed, but quite sunny and completely pest-free. And I could grow tomatoes and stuff and that. That was um, that was quite good, quite sunny, but quite small. And then the one that I really fell for, which you've probably seen photos of, was next to a bizarre and rare, but nevertheless ancient spot of woodland in South London. Oh. So it had a, you wouldn't see any buildings because it was just woodland, oak trees, and then a golf course. So it's an unparalleled vista in London. But it meant it was incredibly shady and it was besieged by pigeons and squirrels oh. <laughs> and sometimes more charming birds. But that was a very valuable education in shade planting, mm. which I completely fell for because it got so little light. And so all of the flowers and vegetables that I was able to grow in tiny scale on my sunny balcony, I could no longer grow. So I became besotted with ferns and wood anemones and foxgloves, you know, yeah, really beautiful, very textural plants that became the building blocks of the garden, the earth garden, which I love your term, that I have now. And I... I I still think that actually container gardening is a fantastic way for anyone to learn because it limits you, but that also puts, you don't have to worry so much about, you know, that the kind of bigger things that happen in a garden, it it can focus your mind and it means you have to really concentrate on the conditions as well. Yes. And and so in the shady garden, I mean, you couldn't grow things like a dahlia in a pot. It was just, it was on that balcony. I did try. (laughs) I did try, but no, that, you know, there was, you know, I think I had like a fatsia japonica out there. I had some bamboo out there. It taught me a lot about how you create the vision of green in terms of creating height. So I played around with levels and structure and because you do only have so much room for pots, but the, the pots that I planted up then, I still have by my back door now. They're the most low tolerance, easygoing. They'll have star of Iphian coming up. Uh, any second now they have narcissus coming up and then that flows through and then you'll get the anemones and that you know there are lots and lots of layers in there that yeah yeah it's the same that i know that you do in your cutting garden yeah it's it's just all done on a mini scale yeah and so it makes it more affordable and if, if you're working flat out it's it's really doable did did you have a did you have an irrigation system or, or did you have to water with a by hand yeah it was and it was a real yeah, I mean, the flat was tiny, but, you know, you take your uh, watering can to kitchen sink and fill it up and then go and water things. Yeah. But again, because it was quite shady, it didn't dry out very much. Of course. So yeah. it looked after itself quite well. And so, I mean, before we move on to the book, which, of course, is the main thing I want to talk to you about well, and your, and your podcast, but maybe will you name, I don't know, Four or five of your favourite plants from that sort of very small scale shade planting, because I think people find it so challenging, don't they? Um, particularly shade planting, but particularly shady balcony. Yeah. So ferns, which I know is a broad one, but dryoptis, if that's the pronunciation. Um, you yeah. know, I 
There's one of the least fussy. They're good for dry shade as well, which is perfect for containers, um, especially because on a balcony you'll often have a rain shelter from the roof above as well. Yeah, and whoever's yes. atop of you, so you have to accommodate that rain shadow. Mullenbeckia, which I know can be a thug if you don't constrain it, but tapped into corners of containers looks so pretty. Yeah, and will stay green for a lot of the year if you're if you have that. The other thing about balconies is that they can be mini microclimates. You don't really get much in the way of frost, so that works. Yeah. Um, Fatsia japonica, as I mentioned, I mean, I've still got two of those plants in my garden now. In containers, they can be very structural and interesting. They almost look like house plants with those big star-shaped leaves. Yeah. I would always, I, I grew a lot of tulip pool sharer, actually. Oh, tell me about that. I don't know it. Uh, I might be pronouncing it wrong, but it's a very, very dark purple tulip. It flowers quite late in the season. Okay. Um, they're quite tall. And that was a bit of drama. And I, I tended to find that actually dark colours in that environment seem to work better. Oh, if that's I tried, interesting. You know, because it is so small, if you tried, I tried white and it all just looks a bit rubbish. Okay. Um, and if you try anything too gaudy, you need a lot of it to really make an impact so just the odd pink thing here or there looked a bit yes. rubbish yeah 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 that's that's so really stick to kind of rich colors mm. did you try nicotianas did you try the tobacco family or not i did i did mm. and you know what there was i think it was lockdown year i grew them from seed and they did so well it was the very pale green classic i don't know the name of that one off the top of my head grandiflora is it the one that's really scented yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and of course you're in such a small space and we would, in lockdown, my husband and I would sit on this tiny fold-down table. I had like a 1950s fold-down table, which is perfect because you want everything to tuck away when you're trying to rummage around. And and anything scented, you just fills that space because it's just you and the plants. Wonderful. So, yes. Yeah. So then you went on and, and you did this rather brilliant thing, which is that you decided to find out about why women gardened. And, and that's yeah. really the main thing that, that we're here to chat about. Uh, so I read in, in the book that you, you sent out this online questionnaire and overnight you, you had 700 women replied to you. Yeah. Well, maybe not straight away, but very quickly. Yeah. Uh, so with massive with, days. Yeah. yeah. And, and basically asking them the different reasons why they gardened. And then, from that, you sort of spun it down and decided on a certain number that you would actually go and meet all around the country and actually even into Europe, didn't you? So will you, will you tell us about that whole process? Because one, it's, it's sort of such a great use of modern modes of communication, which is just like you can just overnight, you can just get this incredible response and sort of feeling for things. But also it's such a nimble way of, of kind of researching, isn't it? I mean, just just pulling on such a wide net of experience. So I found that very inspiring. Will, will, you, tell us, will you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, of course. So the, the Google form came a few months, or maybe a few weeks after the initial uh, curiosity that sparked, sparked it all. And I didn't, I mean, you, you write books, you know, you've got one out right now, but you know what it is when you've got one in and then you're like, oh, I must have another one. And you feel that strange pressure. And that yeah. was very stifling for me in lockdown. So I decided, or either I was advised, very good piece of advice to kind of drop the notion of what could be a book and instead follow what I was curious about. And I wanted to know why people garden. This was a time where everyone was gardening because it was locked yes. down. Yeah. And, and I wanted to know why I did it. And 
And at first I wrote like a physical list of names of people whose work I enjoyed or whose Instagrams I thought were good or who I thought were really cool uh, and they were all women. And then I realized that in order for this to be a proper study of inquiry, for it to be really taking in as many stories as possible that I needed to open it up. And so that's when I set up Google form and I didn't actually have much expectation of it. I think I put like a link in my Instagram that it was a very, very basic questionnaire. It literally sort of, it gave you one of five age groups to select, to ask where you were based. It asked if you gardened professionally and it asked if you gardened alone. And it asked if you were prepared to be contacted. And then the final question, which is the one that sort of unlocked it all, were kind of six words. What drew you to gardening? Five words. And it was that, it was that which was so fascinating because the, the answers ranged everything from my mum, full stop, to several hundred words of people's life stories to something, you know, someone I went and did end up interviewing and did their story end up in the book. Someone called Holly wrote, I used to be a drag king and now I'm a market gardener. Yeah. And brilliant. I was just like, what that that's a novel in yeah. in <laughs> a handful yeah. of words. And so yes, that was I was completely addicted to all of these responses and I was overblown, like, you know, overwhelmed by them all. And I realized that, you know, I really wanted to hear these stories and potentially tell them as well. Yeah. And yeah. There are so many that I found incredibly moving and I mean there was one particular one where I'm not going to mention the person because I'm not sure if I should in a way but had a stillborn child and uh and she made the garden around the memory of of this baby of this infant which was of course so much past their life but but with a huge void as well and um uh, you you tell the stories of the individual women in in such an empathetic way. It's um it's wonderful. But I I asked you whether you would think about two or three of the stories that that you might tell us in a little bit more detail that that were in the book. Mm, yeah yeah. I mean, well, let's start with Fiona, seeing as you mentioned Heather, and Fiona was someone who I so there, you know much as the survey went out and I did my own line of inquiry, I also realised that there there were certain things that I wanted to interrogate and investigate and look at and that relationship between motherhood and nurturing and fertility in women is something that I feel is parroted quite a lot without actually being looked at and so and it was something that came up quite early in the research and so I did speak to women who were mothers who had children about gardening but I also thought well what happens if you if you don't have children if you can't have children if you have lost children how and you garden what, what comes up there and so Fiona is a journalist and she had written about her loss several years ago now. And she says she still gets several emails a week about this story. It's a very powerful story. And um, I asked if I could come and visit her. And she kindly agreed. And she's like a lot of journalists and writers, very, very pragmatic. And um, I'm pleased to say she has gone on to have two living children. But yes, we, yes. We, sat in, we sat in her garden, in Willow's garden. Willow's the name of her first daughter. And I have never been in a garden quite like it. It's It had a real sense of both the sacrosanct, but also not in a sort of precious way. Like, you, like people were welcome to go into this space. But it was sort of, you know, when you walk into a church or a place of reverence yeah. and it feels very hushed. A crematorium uh, garden or something, yeah. 
Yeah, I know exactly what you exactly. mean. Exactly. Yeah. And the really lovely thing about it was that she commissioned a willow sculpture of a little girl to stand in the middle of this garden. And she said that there would come a time when, and, and the, the girl in the sculpture is about six, and she has said there would come a time when her living children would be at the right age to be able to stand next to the sculpture and she would get an understanding of what her family might have looked like. Oh, wow, uh, yeah. Which I found incredibly moving. But, the you know, she 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 made this incredibly ambitious garden out of a piece of woodland and I was like, you know, this is a hugely ambitious thing to do in the face of grief. And uh, she said, well, I had to fill the garden with the same ambition that I had for the enormity of what I was going through. It was always going to be an ambitious garden because she had to pour it all in. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, wonderful. And will you tell us maybe another another very sort of contrasting story or two? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, let's talk about Sarah and Ali, mm. who are really joyful, exuberant, wonderful story. And and the interesting thing about about everyone I spoke to in the book, with the exception of Sarah and Ali, it was that they all gardened alone. And I yeah. garden alone. You know, my partner doesn't garden with me. Mm-hmm. And that was largely the case of pretty much everyone I spoke to. I mean, some were maybe gardening in a slightly professional capacity and then that was different, but certainly on their own space, they did it alone. And Ali is Ali Smith, the novelist. And I wanted to speak to her because I loved the seasonal quartet that she had written. Um, but also because she gave an interview and said that during lockdown, her greatest achievement was making a compost heap. Mm. which I was tickled by. Yeah. And I was like, okay, well, I want to come and see your compost heap kind of thing. Uh, and she said, you're welcome to come, but you've got to speak to Sarah, her wife, too, because she's the real gardener. Now, Ali is definitely a gardener. She's a rose gardener. She knows how to look after apple trees. She loves gardening. But I had this fantastic afternoon with the pair of them, and they've been gardening together for decades, for, you know, over 20 years, even ever since they met as students. And the interesting thing with them is that they gardened on essentially rented or borrowed land, but it was the biggest thing in their life. And they sort of inherited this space from other elderly, also female neighbors who were no longer alive. And what was so interesting was to have such a connection to land that you didn't certainly know the future of. Yes, and yes. They, they said, you know, like if that there was, you know, that I said they were like constantly on something of a knife edge that if the chap who owned it decided to sell it for development, they would lose this garden they'd put decades of their life into. And I said, well, what would you do if that happened? And they were like, we would sell and remortgage everything to keep the garden. It had become so much a part of their their being. Yeah. Yeah, and so we, there was just lots and lots of roses and this kind of overlapping of literature and uh, names of plants and, yeah, it was wonderful. And then um, that that led, I think I'm right in saying that then led into the podcast rather than the other way around. Yes, um, correct. So you very sweetly had me on the, on the podcast, and it was it was great fun chatting to you. And I I really loved. I mean, you had um, oh well, you're doing your Guardian column, aren't you, with Claire? Yeah, and you had her yeah. on. So you've become great friends, have you, through gardening, or were you yeah. friends already? We were, no, we became, we became friends through that, you know, to go back to your point about modern technology and, and how people get to know one another. 
I was aware of Claire's work from a project she did years ago in the wake of Chelsea. And again, going back to that, when I was writing about slightly unusual things in gardening, Claire was working on a project that was attempting to rehome plants after Chelsea. And so I wrote about that. And we connected and we, we met that way about five years ago now. And we've become very good friends. We ought to say her surname because I didn't. Um, so we're sure. talking about Claire. Well, I never, is it Ratinon? I haven't met her. Ratinon, really, yeah. Yeah, I really haven't. Yeah. I'd love to meet her. So I found her interview fascinating. She actually lives quite near me in East Sussex, so I must try and get her on too. It'd be great. And then I, I really enjoyed the one with Poppia Catcher who is, in, again, you're a sort of contemporary of, you know, she's a young, I love you young ladies, you see, I love <laughs> you, you young women who are getting into gardening. It's very exciting for me that um, as I get older and older and kind of, I, I love it. But then you had a nice seasoned person like me as well, which you had Margaret House. So you had this series of yeah. really quite in-depth in interviews with these with these women or you know, sort of well over half an hour, aren't they? Why why they garden? And I, I love yeah. them. I find them really, really wonderful to listen to. I'm quite an insomniac these days and I listen to them at night and um, I, I really enjoyed them very much. So, so, and are you going to do more of those, do you think? I'd really love to. The reaction to the podcast has really blown us all away. So, you know, as you know, because you you met the team, we're an all-female team. We're a bit of a scraggly band. We like, drive around in hired cars and try to squeeze it all in around childcare and other jobs and everything else. And it has been a part of the reason I wanted to do the podcast was I'd finished the book, but the thing that made me want to write the book, which was to talk to people and hear these stories hadn't gone away despite yeah. having filed the book. Yeah. And I thought, actually, you can write so much, but you can't capture the nuance of listening to a conversation. And that was something that I really wanted to do. And it was a nice opportunity when so many people in the book were anonymous for very understandable and important reasons it was nice to be able to uphold people who were known for gardening or maybe known for something else other than gardening and say actually let they garden as well yeah but yeah I, we would love to do a second season we're trying to find someone to support us in doing yeah. that and and if we can we will but I'm, I'm sure so you glad you enjoyed it yeah I really really enjoyed it <laughs> and um I mean, we should sort of begin to come to an end, I suppose, but I'd love to hear, I mean, what, what none of you know, because I, I, I can actually see Alice and I follow her on Instagram. So I know that she is really about to have a baby. I mean, like really, really, she is very heavily pregnant, which is why we've actually had to bring this forward a little bit because her baby is due on Wednesday. So, um, <laughs> you know, like all good women, she is working to the last or not like, but anyway, yeah. I did too. But also you've just got this amazing job taking over from another Alice of yeah. becoming the Guardian writer. And why did you decide to share it, the two of you? It was a decision that the Guardian made for us, actually, okay. but I think we were both incredibly grateful for because, as you know, writing weekly is a lot, especially about gardening. And I think I'm not sure that this is a necessarily traditional approach, but both Claire and I are very upfront and honest about the gaps in our interests and our education and our knowledge around gardening. Like our garden in for London, a generous plot, but it is small and it's north facing. There's no way I could grow much in the way of edibles out there. And that's a huge part of gardening and what people want to do. 
Claire has an incredible veg plot and a beautiful garden, but she's not that fussed about ornamentals and she'd be the first to admit it. So in many ways, it makes sense to bring us together and allow that to complement each other while also giving us a bit of breathing space to get on with our other projects. So um, it's so lovely to share it. And we are in pretty much, we have always been the kind of people who send long voice notes to each other on a daily basis. So for us, it's just, it feels like a kind of kinship that we have anyway, which is really nice. Fantastic. And so it's already started. I mean, I think you, you started just yeah. before Christmas, was it? Yeah. Not or, even, no. Um, oh. It's, um, yeah, more, re- more recent. I mean, time is weird. And especially when it's been so cold. Yeah. So we started just a few weeks ago. Um, and as you say, because of the baby, I've actually, in my head, I'm kind of somewhere in June because I've been writing them to give myself a bit of breathing space. Yeah, sure. But sure, sure. Um, it's been a lovely, it's been a daunting and a lovely space to occupy. And I'm very glad I'm not doing it alone. <laughs> Yes, good, good. Oh, well, Alice, it's so lovely to talk to you. Anything else that you want to mention that you're doing or? No, you've been, you've been ever so good. Thank you so much. (laughs) um, Well, it's lovely to talk to you. And Alice's book is just out and it's called Why Women Grow. And we'll put all the details in the podcast notes. And thank you, Alice. And really, really good luck with the baby. Thank you. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks so much for listening to Grow Cookie to Range. And it was lovely being joined by Alice, who has just so recently had a baby. So it was fantastic she could take time out to chat to me. Next week, I'm actually going to be on my own because I've been asked so much recently about what are my favourite edible flowers. So I'm going to give you a year's guide. So month by month from January to December, what are my favourite edible flowers? So see you then. You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahraven.com.